following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. A couple months ago, um, Pastor Steve was assigning different topics for the preaching calendar for this year. And when I saw that I was assigned the topic of iniquity, I began to iniquitize. <laughs> Sorry, that's probably not even a verb. But um, actually, I was not assigned the topic of iniquity. I traded with Pastor Chris, who's preaching on atonement, which is what I was supposed to preach on in a couple of weeks, but it conflicted with our spring break. And so he uh, graciously took the topic of uh, atonement. I'm preaching on iniquity today. And... Um, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's a difficult topic, like sin last week. You know, it's not something that I think most of you come to church wanting to hear a message on. And yet, um, as I mentioned last week, I think there's so much that we can learn about God and about ourselves, our condition, uh, when we study these words, and also even our purpose. And so, um, like I said also last week, um, a lot of these themes that we've been covering throughout this sermon series in the Bible Project, I think... Um, again, kind of find their way into these, these, uh, these, this topic of sin and the different ways that sin is expressed and defined in the Bible. You know, last week um, talked about how sin is not just disobeying God's commands or missing the mark of his righteous standard, uh, as many of us may have grown up uh, learning in the church. But sin is ultimately a failure to fulfill God's purpose for us, right? a failure in fulfilling and reflecting his glory as his image-bearing children. Uh, and as I said, when sin is understood in this way, verses like, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, uh, starts to convey a, a much richer meaning, I think, and becomes uh, a little more easier, I think, to make sense of. And what I hope is that um, you begin to see God loves you and has created you for a purpose, and that you begin to see that God does not wish to relate to us on the basis of his rules, but instead on the bedrock of a relationship, a relationship with him. And uh, this was the message of the parable of the prodigal son. And this is why he speaks of sin as being a deviation of his created purpose for us, not just a violation of his laws. And, you know, this is the language of love. This is the language of relationship. And I think it's no different from the way any of us as parents would want our own children to relate to us and to understand us, right? Uh, yesterday, um, our youngest child, our girl in the middle there, uh, turned 13, Sayla, and we're now officially the parents of three teenagers <laughs> in the same house. And um, please pray for us. <laughs> um, you know, when they're young, I think it's easy. You know, you make the rules, and they follow the rules for the most part. If not, you know, there's consequences, and they're very compliant. And parenting seems very easy, right, at least in this age. And yet, as they get older, I think it becomes a little more complicated. And you realize you can't operate this way on the basis of rules. And you have to find a better way to relate to them. And it has to be on the basis of relationship. And otherwise, there's really no peace in the home, right, as they kind of spread their wings and find their own way and um, crave independence. Uh, Cornelius Planting. Plantinga Jr. in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, a, brev a breviary of sin, he writes this, sin is a disruption of created harmony 
and then resistance to divine restoration of that harmony. God hates sin, not just because it violates his law, but more substantively because it violates shalom, because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. Indeed, that is why God has laws against a good deal of sin. God is for shalom, and therefore God is against sin. In fact, we may safely describe evil as any spoiling of shalom, whether physically, by disease, morally, spiritually, or otherwise. In sum, shalom is God's design for creation and redemption, and sin is blamable human vandalism of these great realities. And that's the problem, isn't it? It's like we live in a world where sin is everywhere, where sin has wreaked havoc on every square inch of this earth. And I think the power and the pervasiveness of sin can often lead us into hopelessness and despair. And it's not just when we find ourselves enslaved in our own sin. It's trying to live in just an utterly broken world where sin runs rampant, where sin leads to more brokenness, more depravity. And how do we escape these vicious cycles of sin? Now, this is the essence of the word iniquity, avon or anomia, as the, as the Bible Project video describes it. It's not only distorted behavior, but it's also crooked consequences. The hurt people, the broken relationships, the cycles of retaliation, this is iniquity. And what we begin to realize as we delve into this word is that sin never operates in a vacuum, right? It has consequences that can afflict even those who have not committed sin. And it has ripple effects that are far-reaching. You know, Augustine says that sin becomes the punishment of sin. Meaning sin only begets more sin, which creates this never-ending vicious cycle where we not only sin more, but we also become the victims of the sin that we commit. And it just builds and it builds and it grows and it grows and it's like an avalanche that you can't stop. I mean, look at how racism leads to more racism. Look at how those who are abused become abusers themselves. Look at how we manufacture new lives to conceal our original lie. Look at how the sins of our parents become the sins that we perpetrate on our own children, even though we vow that we never would, right? Look at how sins of addictions, like porn and drugs and gaming, leads us to lie and to cheat and to steal, introducing new and different sins to protect and feed our original sin. Look at how distressed people distress people. Look at how victimized people victimize people. Look at how hurt people hurt people. The crookedness of sin leads not only to personal consequences, but a complete breakdown in our relationships, in our homes, in our organizations, in our society. Sin is a global pandemic, and it's far more deadly and far more widespread than COVID. Sin begets sin, and more sin begets more sin. And how do we escape this vicious cycle? Where does it all end? And I was reminded of the vicious cycle of iniquity and how we all try to find our way and find a way to survive in those cycles from the movie Parasite. And um, I want to apologize. I, I know this is a fairly recent movie. It came out in 2019. And I'll try not to give 
too much away from the movie. If you plan on watching it, I don't mind if you plug your ears or you want to walk, step out of the room, or if you're watching from home, if you want to pause the live stream here. But just by show of hands, how many of you watch this movie? Okay, so most of you. Um, you know, it's, it's truly an R movie, and uh, this is a Korean film, and, and it's actually the first foreign film with subtitles to win Best Picture in the Oscars last year. And so I felt like I had to watch this, and uh, I'll be honest, when the movie was done, I didn't, know, I didn't know what to think. I was like, what was that? Not so much because it wasn't a good movie, but I just I didn't like the feeling that I had when, I, when it was over. And it wasn't a pleasant feeling, right? I felt disturbed, kind of sick. I had the feeling like you just witnessed like a, a horrific car crash. And it hit me that I was, as I was preparing this sermon that this movie is actually a powerful parable of sin and the compounding nature of iniquity. The story centers around three families in this movie. Um, there's a wealthy family of four, the Parks, in the top right there, who live in this beautiful home, and it's designed by a renowned architect. A poor, and there's a, another family, a poor family of four, the Kims, a very common name, who live in a tiny, run-down basement apartment. And then there's a nanny who serves this wealthy Park family, along with her husband, who's introduced later in the, in the story. And this, in the beginning of the movie, this, the son of the Kims, this, the poor family, he lands a job as an English tutor for the teenage daughter of the Parks, which is the rich family. And it's based on false credentials that he and his sister kind of create, and the whole family celebrates you know, their resourcefulness and their cunning when he collects his first paycheck, right? And it isn't long before the Kims begin to scheme new ways to siphon more money from the parks. And they do this by referring their own family members to secure more jobs in the home of the parks, even jobs that they're clearly not qualified for. And they don't have any qualms or issues about deceiving the parks, and they do this without any remorse, even finding unethical ways to get their current employees fired so that they can take their jobs. And they succeed in their conniving efforts. And before you know it, the entire Kim family is on the Park family payroll. The son is a tutor. The daughter is a child therapist. The mother is a live-in nanny. And the father is their limo driver. And the Parks, they don't realize that each of these new employees are from the same family, right? They've been duped. And the Kims are exploiting the, na the naivete and the wealth of this young family, leeching off them in every way. And that's why the movie's called Parasite. And it seems like the Kims have executed their plan to perfection, right? They finally got their poverty out of their low-class status. And when the Parks are away, the Kims, you know, they gather in the home, they celebrate, they party, and they, they pretty much live as if this home belongs to them. But the original long-time living nanny who gets pushed out of that job deceptively discovers their secret by accident and then things begin to just quickly unravel. And what we discover is that this nanny is actually more conniving, more crazy, more depraved than even the Kim family is. And I'm not going to give away much more than that except to say from this point on the movie, sin begets sin. And more sin begets more sin. And greed leads to deception. And deception leads to lies. And lies leads to violence. Violence leads to abuses of power and death. Just dramatic shifts in power throughout the movie and traumatic abuses of power. And the movie reaches its apex in a horrific flurry of violence. 
And, you know, before watching the movie, I heard people say this movie's a statement on social class inequality or classism. But, you know, whether it's intentional or not, I, it seems to me that this movie is actually a very profound picture of the nature of sin and how we are all both victims and perpetrators of it and how sin destroys everything in its path. You know, this is Isaiah 59 told in the story of a movie and set to our contemporary culture. I want to read Isaiah a few verses from Isaiah 59 for you. If you've watched the movie, just think about it in, in this context. It says this, But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken falsely, and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. Their feet rush into sin, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. They pursue evil schemes. Acts of violence mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks along them will know peace. So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance, and truth has stumbled in the streets, and honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. And the Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. I, I like that last line there. It says, the Lord looked, and he was displeased that there was no justice. And that's kind of how I felt at the end of this movie. You know, um, it's in a world filled with crookedness and vicious cycles, how do we find our way? How do we find our way out? Cornelius Plantinga Jr. again says this, The great writing prophets of the Bible were unafraid to diagnose sin as the oldest and deepest human problem. They talked about it all the time, often in contexts in which they protested injustice in the land. The prophets knew that sin had, has a thousand faces. They knew how many ways human life can go wrong because they knew how many ways human life can go right. You need the concept of a straight line to tell when one is crooked. These prophets kept dreaming of a time when God would put things right again. They dreamed of a new age in which human crookedness would straighten out. The foolish would be made wise and the wise made humble. They dreamed of a time when the deserts would bloom, the mountains would run with wine, people would stop weeping and be able to sleep without a weapon under their pillow. People would work in peace and work to fruitful effect. A lamb could lie down with a wolf because the wolf had lost its appetite. All nature would be fruitful, benign, and filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood, and all nature and all humans would look to God. Lean toward God and delight in God. Shouts of joy and recognition would well up from women in streets and from men at sea. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation 
injustice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. And I think this hope, this vision is actually captured in the final scene of the movie, Parasite. We're left with the son longing to be reunited with his father, but they're unable to because of the carnage and because of the consequences of their own sin. And it is with this great hope and vision, a hope that the Old Testament prophets, a hope that we share, and it's against the backdrop of this broken and crooked world devastated by sin that Jesus himself enters. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of the, by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And Matthew is quoting Isaiah 40 here when the great prophet declares in Isaiah 43-5, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make it straight. In the desert, a highway for our God. Each, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. God was about to enter into our world through the sending of his son. And his son was going to make straight that which has been made crooked by sin. And though the crookedness of sin had penetrated every square inch of the earth, the Messiah was going to level all of it. Every valley, every mountain would be made low and level and straight in his path. Through Christ, heaven was about to invade earth. And this would be God's answer to sin. But before I go on, I, I want to present the ways that we often try to address sin in our own sinful, incomplete ways. You know, back in Jesus' days, among the Jews, there were basically existed four different groups of people. Uh, they split into these four camps, I think largely because they disagreed on a number of things. They disagreed on how they viewed the world. They disagreed on how to best live in this world as Jews under Roman rule. And they disagreed on how to deal with the brokenness of this world, the problem of sin and evil. And I don't want to stereotype or overgeneralize here, but I think these four basic groups of people still exist in our world today. And as I describe each one, I want you to think about which group you might best identify with whether it's the Pharisees, the Zealots, the Sadducees, or the Ascends. Apologize, I, I couldn't find a picture of uh, the Zealots, but just in your mind, think about Barabbas. He's probably the most well-known Zealot. Um, so the Pharisees, they're probably the most well-known among these four. As you know, we, we, we speak, preach about them often. Even last week, uh, you know, we talked about just their self-discipline. And they were religiously motivated. And they, they thought that they could fight sin. They could defeat it with their, with their disciplined lives. And they saw sin as evil, but they believed that one could master over it with strict observance to every detail of the law. And these Pharisees, they had a lot of spiritual influence with the Jews. And even some political influence among the Jews in that day. But they also resented not being able to practice their religion as freely as they desired. 
And they couldn't help being judgmental of others because in their mind, they had conquered their own sin through their devotion and through their obedience to God. And they saw the world just as black and white. And they dedicated their lives to helping the other, others to see the world as black and white as well. And the next group, we have the zealots. And this is a very politically motivated group, you know, who saw injustice everywhere. And they would fight sin with violent political upheaval. And they were the political activists of their day. And sin was always only seen through this political grid. And the greatest sin to them was their political oppression. So they rejected Roman rule. And they devoted themselves to fighting that system. And politics consumed them. And they were so passionate that they were called the zealots because they were so zealous. So zealous, in fact, that they would be willing to kill anyone who opposed them or stood in their way. And they wanted justice. But they thought that that could only be achieved in political terms. And they hated this world as it was. And they dedicated their lives to changing it. And then we have the Sadducees. These are the more secular and financially motivated ones. And they, they minimized sin. And they minimized evil in this world. And they saw it as much ado about nothing. Viewing it as largely an old-fashioned religious myth. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And they were the most Hellenized among the Druze, meaning they appreciated Greek culture. They embraced it, and they actually respected Roman rule, unlike the Zealots. And, you know, today, maybe in today's terms, they would be seen as people who look most comfortable in this current world that they live in. They believe this life is all there is, and perhaps today they would embrace science and reject religion. And they not only held political power in the Sanhedrin, but they made up the wealthy upper class. And so their influence and affluence gave them little incentive, little desire to change the world as they knew it. And they understood the rule, the world. They played by its rules. And they knew how to make it work for them. And then lastly, we have the Ascends. And they're secluded. And I think they're motivated by fear. And they're this ancient Jewish sect which feared sin and its effects. And so they lived in seclusion in their own small monastic communities in the desert isolated from the rest of the world. And this is actually why I think we hear so little about them in the Bible. But they meticulously obeyed the laws of Moses and they dedicated themselves to prayer and to the purification and in preparation of the coming of the Messiah. And they believed that they alone were the one true remnant. And they didn't understand the world. And so they hid from the world in their holy huddles, in their religious bubble. And each group viewed sin and dealt with the problem of sin in their own way, didn't they? And again, I want to ask you, which group do you identify with the most? It is in this very climate, with these four groups of Jewish people, that Jesus enters. And he challenges each of their wrong-headed approaches of sin. He destroys the myth that sin can be eradicated and holiness can be achieved through the strict obedience of the laws of Scripture like the Pharisees. And so he reminds them, and he reminds his own disciples in prayer that only our Father in heaven is holy and that we should ask him to forgive our trespasses. He didn't see sin as a purely a political problem that needed to be usurped with a vengeance nor did he see sin only in terms of the power structures of his day. So he reminds us that all of it, 
All the power, all the control and sovereignty ultimately belongs to God. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. He refuses to minimize the power of sin or the reality of evil like the Sadducees did. And so he teaches us to pray with humility. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He doesn't run from sin, nor does he seclude himself in his own holy huddle like the Ascends did. But he instructs his disciples to step into the sinful world and to bring the light and the love of heaven into their spaces, praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see what I'm saying here? Jesus understands that how we define sin and how we deal with sin will be based on our own sinful tendencies. And so he steers us away from that, our own way of thinking, our own understanding, and he presents God's plan, God's purpose. And it's very different from our approach, isn't it? And here's the best part. God's plan and God's purpose includes us. It includes us as his children, as his image bearers, to bring about shalom, to bring about God's wholeness and healing into this broken world. And how are we called to do this? How do we step into this broken world and disrupt these patterns of crookedness and evil? How do we stop these cycles of retaliation that sin creates and iniquity compounds? As his children, God calls us to follow the example and the teaching of his son who radiated the fullness of God's glory like no other. His way would not only speak into sin, his way would step into sin and reverse its cycle. I know we read these verses last week, but I think they're worth reading again uh, with this new perspective on iniquity. And I want you, as you listen to these, these verses from Luke 6, just consider how they disrupt the sinful patterns and vicious cycles of sin. Jesus says this, But to you who are listening, I say, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. You notice how he take, each of these takes a sin that has been committed against us. A sin that we have been a victim of. And it converts it. And it transforms it into a blessing in return to the same person who gave us, who sins against us. And whether it's replying to a curse with a blessing, whether it's giving more when something is taken, whether it's loving someone who hates you 
whether it's praying for someone who harms you. Jesus is calling those who follow him to reverse the cycle. The reverse, the curse of sin. By taking the wheel that's turning one way, right? The way of sin, iniquity, and destruction, and bring it to a grinding halt. And to turn it in the opposite direction, the way of justice and mercy and loving kindness. And when someone wrongs you, the only way to stop the vicious cycle of sin is to do the opposite, back to them. To love them. To give to them. To pray for them. To serve them. To forgive them. This is how we enter into a sin-filled world and bring heaven down to earth. This is the will of the Father. This is the example of his son. And this is the call to all of us as his children. You know, as a former Pharisee, Paul recognized the incredible power of sin. And, uh, you know, in his famous confession in Romans 7, Pastor Lester referenced this in his message on the Holy Spirit. You know, he's struggling and he says, I I do the things that I don't want to do. And I don't do the things that I want to do. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And there's almost a sense of hopelessness in those words. And yet, we see as Paul gets older and more accomplished, he begins to think of himself less. I think I've shared this with you before, but I want you to notice how Paul's own self-awareness of his sin grows with each passing year as his faith continues to grow. In 1 Corinthians 15, sometime around 56 AD, Paul says this about himself. He says, I am the least of the apostles. So among the 12, I'm the worst. And then in Ephesians 3, about four years later in 60 AD, he says this, I am the very least of all the saints. Meaning, among all the Christians I know, I'm actually the least. And then towards the twilight of his life, in A.D. 62, in 1 Timothy 1, he says this, I, Paul, the worst of sinners. Among all sinners, I'm the worst. You see this progression. Paul becomes more self-aware of his own sinful crookedness as he draws nearer and nearer into the light of Christ. And Paul's answer to his struggle with sin is found in the very next chapter in Romans 8. His victory is found in Christ, who's made us more than conquerors. But it is at the end of this famous epistle in Romans that Paul summarizes how we overcome the sinful patterns in this world. He gives very specific instructions in Romans 12, verses 9. Through, through uh, 21, it says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. 
Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will pay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Does this sound familiar to you? This is basically Paul's reiteration, paraphrase of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And like Jesus, Paul is giving his beloved very personal and very practical instructions on how to stop the vicious cycle of sin. And you notice there seems to be a word for each of these four groups in Jesus' day within these verses. To the wealthy and secular Sadducees, I think this would have spoken to them. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. To the legalistic and religious Pharisees, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. And to the angry and political zealots, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. And to the fear-filled and secluded ascends, he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's nothing to fear. Good can overcome evil through the gospel, through the light and the love of Christ. Each of them had their own way of dealing with sin, but it wasn't God's way. And Paul is teaching them the way of Christ. And this is why the disciples in the early church, in the Acts, they would be referred to as the, one, the followers of the way. He is the way. He is the truth and he is the life. And it is only his way that will stop the crooked cycle of sin. It's a better way. And Paul closes his letter, his famous letter to the Romans with this. In Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, he says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor. As yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. This is a remarkable statement coming from a former Pharisee. Paul learned from Jesus, and he repeats the words of Jesus here. Paul learned that the law is not fulfilled by avoiding sin, the law is fulfilled through love, through the ways that we love one another these very specific ways. 
God has called his children as his image bearers to step into the sin and the brokenness of this world and to bring his restorative power into it through the ways that we love as God has loved us. At this time, I'd like to ask you to gather the elements for communion. If you don't have them, um, you can raise your hand and someone will get them to you. Jesus not only taught his disciples how to break the cycle of iniquity in their lives and in this world, he exemplified the way and he it was perfectly exemplified in the cross. Jesus, even in the midst of his incredible suffering, even into his last dying breath, He's blessing those who are cursing him. He's forgiving those who are killing him. And he's giving all of himself, even his very life, for those who only wished harm upon him. What we could not do, Christ has done. And I know that there are some of you in this room and watching even from your homes who are stuck in this vicious cycle of sin and iniquity. And you are deep in the middle of it. And maybe it's a generational sin, something that was passed down from your own family. And your sin is only beginning more sin. And things are going from bad to to worse and they're spiraling downward and you can't find your way out. His blood and his body is for you. And there are some of you who are mired in a broken relationship where someone has hurt you and you've only contributed to that brokenness by repaying evil with evil. And now you are living in the carnage those sinful choices and you don't know what to do. This blood, this body is for you. And some of you know, you know what God is calling you to do right now in this moment. God has brought someone into your heart. There's someone to forgive someone to show mercy to. There's someone to reconcile with. And yet you feel hopeless. You can't, in your own strength, find the power to do this. This blood, this body is for you. What we cannot do in our own power, Christ will do in us and through us. He will accomplish this work of moving us from glory to glory, more and more into the image of his Son so that we resemble our Father, heaven, just as Christ did. And he will do it through the power of the resurrection 
and the work of the Holy Spirit. And when we surrender in faith, we can love one another. It's possible. Good can overcome evil. We can fulfill his will and purpose as his children. We can bear his image to the fullness of his glory. And when we do this, the kingdom of heaven comes near. Not just comes near, the kingdom of heaven invades earth. One person at a time. One relationship at a time. One act of kindness at a time. One gift of mercy at a time. This time, let's take of the bread first and then the juice. of his blood and his body which is for you Father we confess that we live in a sinful world filled with iniquity crookedness cycles of retaliation brokenness and we confess that we have contributed to that in our own sin. We have repaid evil with evil. And now through the power of your blood, through the work of the Holy Spirit, let us overcome evil with good. Fill us, Lord. Give us the strength. Grant us the faith to obey your commands, to love you and to love one another so that we might walk in the fullness of your glory from glory to glory resembling you as our Father in heaven and we as your faithful children.